Hey everyone, it's Abadesi, your host of today's Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers that are shaping the future of tech. I'm the author of Dream Big, Hustle Hard, the Millennial Woman's Guide to Success in Tech, and I'll be hosting more episodes alongside Ryan this year. On this episode, I chat with Anne Mira Co, founding partner at Floodgate, a seed stage VC firm in Palo Alto. She's been called the most powerful woman in startups by Forbes and is an early investor in Lyft and TaskRabbit. She's also a lecturer in entrepreneurship at Stanford and a founding member of AllRaise. In this episode, we talk about the winding path of her career, why the tech industry should always take a step back to question whether everyone prospers from our work, and how she manages her children's relationship with social media. We also discuss her favorite products, Workona, Streak, Trello, and her love of bullet journaling. But before we jump in, let's give a shout out to our sponsors. Fun fact, the gorgeous 1985 Ferrari Testarossa has appreciated upward of 400% over the past 10 years, outperforming the S&P 500, most real estate, and other traditional investments. The problem is regular investors like myself don't have a few hundred thousand dollars laying around to buy and hold these rare and expensive assets. With this realization, New York-based Rally Road built an app, you may have seen it on Product Hunt last year, so that normal folks like myself can invest in high-value alternative assets like the Ferrari for as little as $50 per share. You can even get a fancy share certificate so you can show it off to your friends. All offerings are SEC registered, and all assets are museum quality and professionally maintained by the company for long-term appreciation. Members can participate in initial offerings as well as buy and sell shares in regular trading windows for each asset, very similar to the stock market. They're starting with classic cars, but look out for their launch of the second asset class in early 2019 as they work towards democratizing alternative asset investing. Check it out at joinrally.com slash product hunt. In addition to my day job at Product Hunt, I also invest in early stage startups through a fund I started. I called it Weekend Fund. At first, I was hesitant to invest in startups, worried that my time would get sucked away into back office management, LP tax reporting, and all the overhead that goes into managing a fund. Fortunately, AngelList Venture Services handle all that for me, so I can focus on finding and backing great entrepreneurs. So far, AngelList has hosted over 130 venture funds, ranging from $500,000 to several millions of dollars under management. The team is super knowledgeable, having supported hundreds of investors over the years, and eager to help fund managers plan a fundraising strategy. Once you've raised capital from LPs, you choose what startups to back, and AngelList handles the rest. If you're interested in investing in startups, take a look at angel.co slash venture funds, or email me at ryan at producthunt.com, and I'd be happy to help. Hey everyone, it's Abadesi here, and today I'm joined by the incredible Anne Mira Ko, who, amongst a number of incredible achievements, is a founding partner at Floodgate, and she's known as a pioneer investor in the artificial intelligence space. This actually stems from her family background. Her dad was a rocket scientist at NASA. Anne, thanks for being with us on Product on Radio. Thanks for having me. So you're definitely one of the more recognizable faces and names in the industry. And I guess I would love to hear from you about your career path. So what actually led you to where you are now, and particularly reflecting on 
those defining moments. So I know you grew up in a house with a NASA scientist. Did space ever tempt you? How was it that you sort of ended up being in tech, being in AI, yeah, and leading all the initiatives you do now? Yeah, I, I always giggle when it, when people talk about career paths because that, that implies like such a directed motion. And for me, it's definitely not the case. I've had more of a career journey and that, that involves, you know, the best trips that you take when you have a real journey. It's the meandering. It's the, the paths that you didn't expect to take. It's the surprises along the way. That's what makes a trip really special. And I think that's the way that my career has really unfolded over time. I actually had a brother, an older brother, who always knew what he wanted to do. And I remember from the time I was really little, he was super into airplanes and cars. And so we'd go to air shows with him all the time. My parents knew that that's something he was passionate about. And, you know, if you follow his career, he has had a real career path because now he's working with F1 cars in, in Germany, basically you know, creating the chassis and designing the chassis for race cars. And, and if I, and when I go back to my, my, childhood, I remember that created a lot of anxiety for me because I wasn't one of these kids who always knew what I wanted to do. And I wanted to be a doctor at one point. I wanted to be a lawyer at another point. I wanted to be a technical founder of a company at another point. And, and here I am, you know, I'm a, a venture capitalist. So a lot of it has the roots in, I would say, I give my parents a lot of credit for allowing me to follow my curiosity, even when it seemed meaningless, and allowed me to just sort of follow the path that I thought was right at that moment. That's really incredible insight. I can relate to that because my older sister always knew she wanted to be a doctor from when she was really young. And similar to you, I feel like I've sort of fallen into a lot of the things that I'm now known for, but I found the work rewarding and fulfilling, uh, which is why I keep doing it. You're educational background is pretty technical. You know, you studied really specific degrees. Like, could you tell us a bit about that part of your life and what you thought you might end up doing being in academia and being in that environment? Yeah. I mean, so I first started off electrical engineering in undergrad and I went to college thinking I was going to be a biology major. And the, the thing that was interesting for me was I was really good at math. And I realized pretty quickly that in biology, at least at the undergrad level, you didn't need to do a lot of math. And so to me, that was a problem because I wanted to take more math classes. And so I just sort of went around talking to a bunch of teachers. And one of the professors talked about micro robotics and how that might have impact in the medical field in the future. And that just kind of caught my attention. I thought that that was just an interesting idea. And so I fell into robotics at Yale as an undergrad. And my senior project was working with a team of other undergrads, really my friends, to create a team of autonomous soccer playing robots that we then took to Paris for the World Cup soccer tournament at the time and participated in a uh, robotic soccer competition. And to me, like that was just, I remember thinking, that was everything, you know, and I, I got to work on the goalie algorithm. I was working on sensor fusion 
And, uh, you know, back then they looked like little trash cans that were roaming around. Our algorithms were not elegant at all. We were just kind of hacking it to make things work. But it was such a fulfilling project. I really loved it. And that was sort of my first taste of being someone technical in a really incredible team. And I ended up in business for a multitude of reasons after college, mostly because I had a chance encounter actually with the CEO of Hewlett Packard. And he invited me to come and shadow him during a spring break. And I took him up on it and shadowed him and really realized that there's this whole world outside of the very technical world that I had both grown up in and majored in in college and found that that was also an area that really interested me. There's a human element to what Lou Platt brought to the executive team um, within Hewlett Packard. And it just sort of opened my eyes to the possibility of what else you could do. He also sort of gave me this incredible gift, which was two photos of my trip to visit with him. One was a picture where I was sitting talking to Lou Platt, the CEO of Hewlett Packard. And then the second picture was from that same week. Bill Gates had come and visited and Bill Gates was sitting exactly in that same seat. And, you know, to this day, it's a, it's a set of pictures that sits on my desk at work because it speaks to two things for me. One, the possibility of what someone else saw in me. And then the second to me was an incredible moment of mentorship. And I, I think about that a lot because I look around and I see incredible potential in a lot of different people. And it reminds me that I should tell them, that I should always tell someone when I see incredible potential in them. That's such a beautiful point that you make around potential. And I've read previous interviews where you mentioned Lou Platt, you know, CEO of Hewlett Packard and the role he played in your life and and speak to that idea of role models and how important they are. I wonder, like thinking of role models, as well as like mentors, you've mentioned before in other articles and interviews, how hundreds of mentors have played a role in your life. Hundreds of people have contributed to your views what is a mentor to you and how do you bring people into your world who you can learn from and and gain wonderful opportunities from yeah I, and i think you know for me i've just been incredibly fortunate with the the sheer number of people who've opened doors for you know a small moment in time to just a prolonged you know career long mentorship and my belief has always been I never asked someone to be my mentor. I would start off with with an act of service. Um, and it, it wasn't built upon a belief that that act of service would then lead to mentorship. So as an example, with Lou Platt, I actually had no idea who he was. I was simply asked to give him a tour of the Yale engineering facilities by the Dean of Engineering. He was, I just knew that he was an important guest to this professor that I really respected. You know, in that moment, I wanted to give him the best tour and show him the ins and outs. And it was a personal tour. So, you know, taking each individual moment and thinking like, how can I make it an exceptional set of services for that person? I remember meeting 
Steve Blank and Audrey McLean and Mark Leslie when I was a graduate student at Stanford and they were teaching a course on entrepreneurship. And a friend of mine asked me to be a co-teacher or a TA for that class. And what I loved about this friend of mine was that he didn't think of it just as being a teaching assistant to the class where you're just, you know, you're going to show up, probably do homework during the class, not really pay attention, and then just grade papers. We really thought of it as how do we participate in this class? How do we make it better? How do we give feedback to the, the professors about what lectures we should change for next year? We thought of it as a participant and owner, not just as a, an employee. When I feel like I've had those moments where I've really put myself in the shoes of someone that I admired and then tried to make their life, their incredibly busy lives, just a, a smidgen easier, then like this, this opportunity set suddenly opened up to me that I didn't even perceive before. And to, to me, I've always believed that that's the path to incredible relationships with people. And that also includes mentorship. That's amazing. I really have noticed a common theme in really successful and accomplished people around this, I guess, just practice of being helpful, like being helpful to people you admire, people who you aspire to be or be closer to or move in the circles of. And it's actually quite a simple thing to do, I think. But one of the, I guess, frustrations that I see a lot of the time on social media and in tech is people almost obsess over the idea of a mentor as if the mentor will be, you know, the solution to whatever they're facing as a challenge, you know, oh, as soon as I find the right mentor, I'm going to be able to, you know, perfect this pitch deck and close this round. Or as soon as I find the perfect mentor, I'm definitely going to finally be able to like, get a job as an engineer. And I think you're right, like, it's not an absolute, it's not like a, a, a solution, a sum, like a simple thing. As you said, it's actually about that reciprocity and being authentic, it sounds like, like really just truly trying to help. How do you suggest people who perhaps have a proximity challenge to the people that they would like to get closer to or connect with, how could people still be helpful, even if, let's say, geography is in the way? <laughs> I think, you know, it, it's actually, in this world, the world is actually becoming smaller and much more democratized in terms of where we see opportunity. And so I think actually being not from Silicon Valley or being in a place which is unique and having insights that are unique is absolutely an advantage. And so some of the people that I know around me, the, the best people are always just incredibly curious and they're trying to learn. And so if you have a perspective that's different, then that's a huge advantage. I think that the thing that people also should then contextualize is to make sure that your secret then is relevant to the person that you're talking to. So, you know, the things that, as an example, from a venture capital standpoint, we're looking for is we're looking for not just a $100 million outcome. We are looking for one of the top 10 exits within any given year. And these days, that's 
trending towards $10 billion or greater. So then you have to think through what are the opportunities in your geography that point to the ability to build a company of that size? Or perhaps you have an expertise in a particular area where you know that there are opportunities to build companies of that size in that particular area. Or you have the ability to provide sort of information or thoughts that would be interesting. So as an example, I've had uh, students literally all over the country participate in studies where where we were trying to figure out how should Floodgate get more of the word out about who we are and how we operate. What do students want to know throughout the country? And, you know, that was actually driven by a student who just said, Hey, like, I think that this is an area that you guys could really stand to use some, some advice on. And I have a network of students who are really interested in participating in a study to figure out what you guys might want to think about. I love that because the student was super proactive, even designed sort of what, what that project would look like and gave me a proposal that I could react to. I've had other students come to me and say, hey, I really want to do a industry roadmap in a particular area. And here's sort of four or five areas that I'm interested in. Do they have any overlap for you? And let me show you sort of an idea of what I want to, to think about. Those are really organic ways of creating real relationships and so I, I've always appreciated that kind of proactive spirit. If that, that study isn't quite right for me, I might suggest it to someone else. I love how you sort of gave the how-tos there. Definitely makes the advice way more actionable and accessible. To your point around people focusing on, you know, where they might have a unique lens with which to view the world or expertise around their local area, I really do feel that you know, that's spot on. Like we see the macro trend changing where we're trying to optimize for inclusion. We're trying to look at whose voices have previously not been amplified enough or perhaps even heard. And I would definitely say to, you know, people in our community who think, oh, but you know, what what do I have to bring to the table to really kind of like challenge the norm and and challenge the narratives and and think about the very thing that sometimes affects our confidence, I'm speaking, you know, personally here as well, is often the thing that can like give us an advantage because we have that unique perspective. So you talked a bit up there about, you know, these amazing experiences you've had as a VC with people showing that proactive spirit. I think that's wonderful advice. I wanted to talk a bit more about your life as an investor. I particularly wanted to know, I mean, you've participated in some incredible deals, Lyft, TaskRabbit, to name a few that our community love. Do you have an investment philosophy or certain things that you look for and kind of go, bing, that's it? Yeah, it changes actually over time. So at, at any given time, I may be looking at a particular area with increased interest, or I might say, you know, this year, this, this area just isn't for me. But, you know, usually what I lock in on is a particular theme. And I'll start to look at companies in that space. It actually tends to be fairly broad and I'll break the rules pretty often, but I like to go hunting for companies based on something, some ideas that I'm, I'm interested in at the time. 
And I know lots of people in our community are aspiring VCs. When you think of people, peers in particular, or even perhaps uh, people that you look up to within your industry, what are the qualities that you see often in, in those individuals? Like what are those sort of like qualities and values that you kind of go, wow, that's what makes them a great investor? Yeah. You know, from an investment standpoint, I think it's really actually reflected in the five values that we have for floodgate. And so what are they? Number one, we do what's right. And to me, you know, that there's a clear answer of telling the entrepreneur the truth of what we really believe. And sometimes the right thing is a difficult decision. It's not easy to implement. It's, it's a tough conversation, but we lean towards doing what's right. Uh, the second is, is sort of a theme that I've always had in my life, which is greatness is a decision. And so some people say, you know, you have to play offense, which, you know, sports analogies uh, doesn't really work well for me. But what I love about, you know, greatness is a decision is that some people will play not to lose, but that that doesn't necessarily mean that you actually might win. I think those two paths are incredibly different. And when you decide to be great, there's a risk to it, but it is probably the only way to achieve greatness. And so that that's something that we look for. Third is actually more of a philosophy around how we treat our entrepreneurs. And I think this is still work in progress. And we we always talk about this as a partnership, which is your life's work is our life's work. And, you know, oftentimes our partnership, we're incredibly busy. We're a really, really small firm. We're struggling with being totally organized and, and being as responsive as we'd like to be. But, you know, 2019, my vow is that we are really going to make this this concept, your life's work is our life's work, truly come alive for entrepreneurs. Um, and I think it's a, it's table stakes for how we should deliver great service to entrepreneurs. The fourth is what we call seek truth over tribalism. And I think, you know, Mike and I have done, we've been very passionate about this, which is that we don't believe the right answer exists in only managing partners of the firm. We believe that the right answer can exist in literally any member of the team. It can exist in any person within a portfolio company. And so, you know, we will stop and think about whether or not we are in a moment truly seeking truth or if we're, if we're just going through the motions, believing a truth. And we try to correct for that. Um, but I think the best venture capitalists that I've ever seen are ones who really buck the trend. And they do that by being truth seekers. And then the last value that we have is something that we call bias for impact. And for me, that's just how do you, you know, are we just being busy or are we having an impact? Are we effective in what we're doing? And again, this is something that I feel like we're always working on. I want to be more impactful. And so those are, you know, when I look at the best venture capitalists, when I look at my partner, 
like maples, I think that there's a real bias for impact. And so those are the things that I believe the best investors reflect. Thank you so much for sharing those. I love the like different elements that all of those values touch upon and all those different principles, the truth-seeking element in particular, because a big part of being a founder is sort of seeing a better future, you know, seeing, seeing a truth that other people can't see or, or seeing, seeing things in, in a better way, in a different way and trying to shape the world to your vision. And I, I definitely sense quite a lot of boldness and like courage from, from those values too. And from the principles that Floodgate's founded on. I'd love to ask a bit more around the Floodgate legacy. So thinking of all these incredible minds that you've invested in and support, all your different founders, and then, you know, fast forwarding into the future. Let's go really far, you know, like a hundred years. What is the sort of like legacy that Floodgate is building? You know, what what is that vision of the world that will happen should all of your portfolio succeed? Yeah, I mean, that's something that we have very in concrete terms. So that is the floodgate vision, which is we exist to accelerate technology breakthroughs that will power a prosperous future for all. And, and I think all of those words are extraordinarily important to us because part of what we're here to do is think about where the technology breakthroughs exist. It's part of the reason that we, we reside in Silicon Valley. It's part of the reason I continue to teach at Stanford in the engineering school. It's uh, part of the reason that we, we love to look at what we think would be cutting edge technology. But the caveat for that is we still think about what is the future that we, we are racing towards and do we want it? Will it create real prosperity? For all. Uh, because, you know, I think the language that we've also used in the past, whether it's software is eating the world or we are, you know, creating massive disruption, I think we should step back from that and really make sure that wherever we're going, we're actually delivering a future that has a benefit that ultimately from a societal standpoint is a net positive. And those are things that we think about. And, and it's, it's extraordinarily hard at the very early stages of investing, you know, at the seed stage and the series A, which is where we sit. There's no product market fit. And half the time our companies will go through some massive change along the way. And we have to make sure that as investors, that remains a consistent vision to our vision of what we, what we want for the future. And in fact, one of the classes that I'm teaching this next quarter at Stanford is actually about blockchain. The title of the class is, So You Want a Revolution. We want to think through what is this that we want to build and what is it for and why? You know, we, we've seen a lot of very technical classes on blockchain. John Mitchell, who's a professor in the computer science department and I, along with another professor in the design school, we're working together along the lines for this class. But what I love about it is it's bringing together people from many dis disciplines to think through exactly these questions. I want to see 
when we think about where's the prosperous future for all is, you know, a hundred years from now, what I would want is a world in which the technology breakthroughs that floodgate has funded and accelerated that those would have created a net positive for as many people throughout the world as, as I could hope for. That's incredible. I think it's incredibly reassuring to hear such a high profile VC talk about prosperity for all. Um, you know, to play a bit of devil's advocate, you can read a lot of really negative stories about the venture industry and how it doesn't necessarily optimize for prosperity for all, for equality, closing the gap between the wealthy and the poor. And this is happening alongside a wider discussion in society about, you know, life and how much we can enjoy it and who has greater opportunities to do that than others and how we can try to increase like access to opportunities, access to technology and everything so that each person, each human on this world has the best chance that they can to make the most of their life, whatever life they want to build. And it, it, it's just really positive to hear that. And I think you articulated it so well, particularly talking about this idea of net positives and ensuring that we aren't just making for the sake of making or doing for the sake of doing, but are really trying to tap into some kind of higher consciousness and, and think about what the long-term impact of that is, what the macro impact of that is. And I think that's really great. And I just wonder, since you are you know, on campus regularly, and connecting with students, this idea of like being conscious of the social impact of technology and the technology that we're building, what we're focusing on, it's something that I'm sensitive to and I feel is really like picking up a lot of steam and something people care more and more about. Would you say that that's true? Like looking at younger generations, like is this a trend that's here to stay and something that <laughs> we can kind of be relieved by that we're caring about it more? I actually think that people have always cared, cared about it. I just think that the narrative can be, be taken over by, by people who want to talk more about disruption rather than creation. I, I also think that, you know, it's a really interesting narrative because if you think about when, when people talk about a vision for where the world is a better place, you know, 10, 20, a hundred years from now, I think people believe that technology plays a role. I don't think anyone would say that technology is not going to play a role in the cure for cancer, right? I don't think that people can say that when we think about water and how we distribute water and how we create more clean water, how we help the environment, like all of those things involve some kind of technology breakthrough. When we think about economic opportunity for the masses, when we think of better education for the masses, I believe that people envision technology playing a critical role in that. So to separate out prosperity from technology advances, I think is crazy but that we need to have a way of creating a better future that's characterized by optimism and hope rather than insecurity and fear. And, and I think technology and Silicon Valley and technologists, academics, scientists, we all have to play a role in that. But I also think that 
it's sort of, it's a marriage of all of these things. It's a marriage of what technology provides. It's a marriage of what the government regulations do, what, what kind of funding we provide to the basic sciences, what a well-functioning capital markets will actually provide in terms of opportunity. It is not just on the shoulder of, you know, technical companies in Silicon Valley. It is something that we all have to play a role in. And I do hope like part of the important, you know, dialogue here is that when we change everything to a language of insecurity and fear, then we, we all sort of retract and we disengage. But when the language is around optimism and hope, you see people engaging in areas of discomfort and exploring new areas of ideas and trying to figure out better solutions for all. And so I, I think it's, it's a change in tone. It's a change in how we perceive who the others are and having just a coming from a place of real empathy and compassion. Yes. That was really beautifully put. I want to like transcribe that and put it on a poster. The optimism and hope piece. So, you know, viewing the world, viewing the future and, and yeah, really just focusing in on optimism and hope for what we can achieve as te- as the tech industry, but also what we can achieve when we work alongside all these other stakeholders that play a role, I think is really powerful. And the thing that particularly stood out for me from that was how approaching things from that position of optimism and hope, as you said, allows us to engage in discomfort, topics that might otherwise be challenging or something we want to avoid, but we suddenly feel empowered to dive into from a place of empathy, as you said. I feel like it's the perfect point to dive a bit more into the efforts that you make from that position of empathy, optimism, and hope to ensure that all voices of talented people are participating in that vision and in that industry, both in terms of how you reach out to founders at Floodgate to make sure that, you know, no corner is unturned as you try to look for the best talent, but then also with the mission for all race to make sure that more female founders are funded and more women are participating in VC. You know, I think this goes back to what what I was saying around, you know, doing what's right. And You know, I just had, I received feedback from my chief of staff, you know, who is five years out of college. So very young woman, but incredibly smart. Her name is also Anne, Anne Lee. But, you know, I'll share some feedback she gave me the other day, which I was, you know, the next, that, that evening, yesterday evening, I went home and I was telling my husband, I'm like, she gave me this piece of feedback and I, I really love it because it's something I need to work on. And what she said to me was, you know, um, sometimes we're so busy and we're taking these meetings back to back to back and we're trying to provide something to the founder where we're saying, Hey, this idea just doesn't seem it's not making sense for X, Y, and Z reason. And we're trying to give that direct feedback. But she said, you know, sometimes we forget where that founder is coming from. And, you know, maybe that day they're running late because their flight was delayed and 
they were traveling to San Francisco for a meeting with Floodgate. And so they were frazzled and they, they didn't answer that one question as well as they normally would have. Or maybe, you know, they have a challenge in their life right now. And just approaching those conversations that we have with entrepreneurs and actually executives, anyone within our circle, uh, with each other, with that level of empathy and desire to understand where, where they're, where they are in their journey. And I think, you know, I don't do a great job of that all the time. And in fact, I would give myself a solid B when it comes to that. And I, you know, and for Asian, that's, that's pretty bad, but I feel like that was such great feedback. You know, I think that I need to work on that. I think that also, you know, when you think about that level of context, you think about the, the people who have underrepresented voices, then you have to, you have to think about the fact that they haven't been coached to the extent that someone who's, you know, gone to Stanford and has a ton of friends who are entrepreneurs, knows a ton of VCs, they just won't have the same context and um, coaching. And, and we should try to recognize that. And so, you know, the, the optimistic side of me is that in 10 years, I've seen huge changes in the funding landscape. So number one, uh, the opportunity for someone to access capital is so much greater than when I first got started because it used to be that you needed to know someone who knew someone in order to get into the club. And now you have accelerators. You have people being coached at the university level all over the country. You have all of these blogs that people are writing that have incredible information in them. You have podcasts. You have, you have all these different avenues for information where I would argue that the, the playing field is not, not level at all, but it is so much more accessible than it was 10 years ago. And so, you know, while I, I don't want to just claim victory at this point, it's, we're not even close. There's sort of two massive things that I believe. One is, this year we've actually made a huge difference and we've made a dent because you look at a lot of these venture firms, which, which have traditionally been all male. You're starting to see women become general partners within these firms. We have to make sure those women are successful and become an important voice at the table. But just getting the foot in the door is already a big deal. The second thing that we've seen, which I think is driving this, is that founders are demanding that their cap table and their VC firms are diverse. And, you know, there's, there's a whole movement around founders for change where tons of people, tons of founders, I think now it's over a thousand founders have said that they are a founder for change. And when they have the choice, they want to only take money from a firm that has a diverse partnership. And to me, like, you know, 10 years ago, you wouldn't have heard someone saying that because A, 
maybe the, the choices were limited, but B, like it just wasn't even on the, on the radar screen, but to have a very high profile founder say that this is an absolute priority for them is a game changer. And I think we're going to start to see that in terms of the voices around the table and not just the diversity that we can see, but the diversity around the table of just the point of view of these individuals, where they come from, what have they experienced in their lives? What are they currently experiencing in their lives that gives like a completely different perspective on pain points and consumer ideals or, you know, enterprise software that's absolutely needed. We just need those voices around the table. And so I think it's, it's like air and water for a venture firm over the next 10 years to be successful. You better have a diverse viewpoint around the table that can argue for those perspectives. Otherwise, you don't stand a chance at attracting the incredible set of entrepreneurs who are democratized to take their ideas wherever they want to take it. That's really powerful. That's amazing. And calling that out for the opportunity that it is, I think, is just incredible. Like you said, you started off by saying, you know, I want to do the right thing, but it's also undeniable, like all the commercial benefits that are open to people that optimize for diversity and inclusion. I think another thing that is really interesting is how I almost feel that participating in in tech and being aware of all the trends and the changes makes me more aware of like human fallibility and like our weaknesses. And I certainly feel that even when we think we're optimizing for empathy or the experiences of another person, as that piece of feedback from your colleague showed you, we're not always doing that. Something's always getting in the way. You know, we're like processing like hundreds of variables, little data points in any waking second. Our brain's looking for shortcuts. It's looking for ways to complete the task at hand as efficiently as possible. And I think, you know, we we owe it to ourselves to be aware of the fact that we do have empathy blockers and we're just not always aware of them. And I love how you're saying that, you know, even just focusing on opportunity and being optimistic about the opportunity can enable us to be more empathetic when the situation arises, which is pretty cool. I'd love to know, like, do you have any advice maybe for anyone that's listening and trying to get closer to like communities that are underrepresented within their organization or any other like groups or identities that they would just love to see more presence from as they operate? Any advice on on how you've gone about doing that at Floodgate or even within Allrays? Yeah, I mean, I, so I think number one, this is really interesting for Fern Mandelbaum once said to, to me, it was about how to think about networks. And, and so, you know, one of the things that I've said to our founders is make sure your networks are actually diverse. And so if you like naturally go to your LinkedIn profile and you take a look at who you're connected to, chances are you have a lot of connections to people who went to the same university, same grad school, you know, same companies that you've worked for or worked with. And that doesn't actually expand your circles. And so, you know, really make sure that you are making an effort 
to then expand into new circles and access those networks. And what I love today is that there are so many different types of networks that you can get access to. And so, you know, for, for me, like I, I've spent a lot of time now with all rays thinking through how to create that access for women. As I then turn to students, I think of a lot of different types of diversity as well. So like I, I think about it at different stages for, and the different projects. How do I think about how I can really be a needle mover? And so, you know, for, for listeners, you should be thinking about sort of in your day to day, are there ways of expanding your network to create influence in new areas that, that you, you haven't, you haven't paid attention to in hiring? As we were thinking about hiring fairly recently, I was given advice that number one, one thing that I need to do is make sure that the on premise interviews that we do are very diverse. Yes, that's so important. That that to me was an eye-opener because when you're reading about someone, it's very different from actually meeting them in person. So you want to make sure that that represents a really great cross-section of different types of backgrounds. Uh, That's really been a needle mover for me. And then the last thing for me has just always been how do I create real uh, connections with individuals Either, you know, if you're, if you're young in your career, like as you think about people that you respect, again, it goes back to that. How do you create real relationships with people from a person who's now sort of in the more mentoring role? I'm always thinking about sort of how do I extend those networks and how do I develop real meaningful connections within my life with people who should be recognized? Um, and how do I make those decisions? Those are things that I'm, I'm thinking about on a, fairly constant basis. You've given us lots of fruitful advice on that front. So thank you so much for that. I wanted to kind of go a bit more micro now and think about your day to day. You do a lot of things. <laughs> you're uh, um, you know, a VC, as we said, you're an academic, you're like teaching, um, you're working with all rays, you're mentoring, you're hiring, you're just doing a, a number of jobs, plus your mom to three kids and a wife to a great husband, and you have a dog. Um, so I'd like to know, what are like the tools in your arsenal that kind of help you get through each day as fluidly as possible, whether they're apps or hacks? Share them with us. I certainly want to know some so I can be more productive. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so these will all probably not come as a huge surprise. I am an avid user of like the Google suite. So I probably have, you know, a 100 tabs open at one time. You know, recently, I've been using this is not even portfolio company, but it's a company called Workona, which allows you to uh, save your tabs and create different windows that have different tabs in them. And so what that allows me to do is create contexts for which I'm working in. And so I save reading to one page. I have deal flow in another. I have sort of email. When I'm just working in email, I have actually founders for change and all raise. Um, I have a hiring. I have a portfolio section. So I have like all these different windows. I even have a shopping uh, Workona, but it allows me to keep those things totally separate 
And so I know what context I'm in when I'm working. The second thing I use is Streak to help me figure out sort of where I am in the process for different companies. Is that the Gmail plugin, like the CRM tool? Amazing. Yes. And then I'm using Trello to keep track of a lot of personal as well as uh, work-related tasks. Because for different individuals, I have different things that I need to remember to do. And then the last thing that I actually have really started to fall in love with is bullet journaling. Bullet journaling is it's just interesting. Different people take it in different directions. There are a lot of people who are extraordinarily artistic that make beautiful artistic pages on which they take notes. I'm a little bit more functional, but I just like to keep track of things in handwriting. And so there are certain things that I'm tracking, just even from a health perspective. How many times have I worked out? Did I, you know, read today? I like to play the piano. So, you know, did I spend even 10 minutes playing the piano? So I just want to see from a month perspective, like, what did I actually, I set out these goals for myself. Like, what have I done? I also like to keep track of things like restaurants I want to eat at, books that I want to read. And so I love to handwrite all of those things. I also keep track of to-dos in handwritten form. And oftentimes I have to then put that into Trello, but like it's, when I have it in a handwritten form, it's much more front and center. And I can sort of, if I didn't complete something, then it gets copied into the next day. And that if I have to copy the same to-do item, you know, four or five times, then I know I haven't done it versus in Trello, I could just keep moving it or I have a due date, you know, and you can ignore things. And so I really love the sort of handwritten notes. Um, and I'm really looking forward to 2019 because my new notebook that I have, which I love, the cover says master plan. And so I'm excited for that. That's amazing. I've actually, so I always carry a notebook everywhere I go. Definitely with you on that idea of just like ha- handwriting things just carries this different gravitas to like typing stuff. I take it more seriously. I feel like I also remember it more. I remember reading a study in a newspaper once about how writing things versus typing things does also help you commit them to your memory better. So yeah, there's definitely truth to that. Just before we kind of run out of time, I wanted to talk to you about the role that technology plays in your home as a parent. So we have some parents in the product and team, lots of our community members, our parents too. There are a lot of conversations happening about how to have a healthy relationship with technology. We now have screen time limitations built into iOS. What do you do at home and like what's worked, what hasn't, and what advice can you give? Yeah, I still struggle with this. So... I think it really depends on the child. Uh, So with three kids, I have several different kinds of personalities in in the mix. Uh, There are some kids who have extraordinary self-control. There are others who do not at all. And and so I've noticed that, especially with parents in Silicon Valley, they, they have very different tolerances for when they'll introduce technology into the mix. And so my daughter, who's 12 actually has friends who do not even have a cell phone. She has a cell phone. But, you know, as far as asking for social media, which she has definitely started to do, and in particular, she's very interested in Instagram, I have told her that she will be ready for Instagram when she decides she's not sad, when she's not 
invited to things. And I've told her Instagram is just a gigantic feed of all the things you weren't invited to. (laughs) So true. It's so true, right? And, you know, I can't imagine going through that. Like in my old age, I'm just grateful to be at home. And, but in junior high or high school, that would have been devastating. And so, you know, I, I don't know when that'll be for her, but, but I've told her that's essentially what I'm helping you avoid. So we think of it from that perspective. I think though, you know, technology is incredible in terms of what kids can learn these days. And so I'm not a parent that turns off technology in that sense. In fact, I run a computer science camp out of my house for three weeks every summer. I hire three Stanford CS students to come in and be basically camp counselors And, you know, as soon as my youngest was able to read, he was working in code.org. At the age of six, he was basically finished with code.org, one of the courses. That's amazing. You're like the tech version of the Incredibles, your family. (laughs) (laughs) But like, you know, it's incredible because a nine-year-old can start to learn how to program in Python. You know, my my 12-year-old when she was 11 was you know, working on the introductory course at Stanford in Java and all like my kids are wonderful and smart and all these things, but they, they're not like some child prodigy. And so, but it's doable because of technology and the availability of information, the availability of these lectures online. And then if you can support them in their curiosity, there's so many different directions to go in. So to me, like that is amazing. And then the last thing I would say about technology that I've seen, which definitely drives an interest area for me is voice. So when you look at, we have Google home and Alexa in our house. Oh, wow. (laughs) All of them. (laughs) And you look at sort of the way my kids interact with this technology you know, my son is asking for the NBA scores when he works, wakes up first thing in the morning and he hasn't even climbed down from his bunk bed. And he's able to do that because he knows that that information is available at his fingertips through voice. And so I just think that there's a whole new set of behaviors that we're going to see with not someone, not these, these kids aren't just digitally native. It is such a part of their lives in a way that I don't think I will ever be able to understand. And their ability to adapt to new technologies is just incredible. And so, you know, I love seeing technology through the eyes of my kids to see like what they really relate to, uh, what delights them, and then what delights me in the process. Yeah, I think that's great. And like you said, it's about catering to the individual, catering to the child, their personality. And and also like what works in your house, like one of my friends here in London was telling me how he turns his router off. Like he just like turns the router off after dinner time and it's just like no Wi-Fi, nothing, go to bed, read, do something else. But I was like, wow, that's quite extreme. But you know, everyone's got to do the tactic that works for them and works in their dynamic, which is awesome. So let us know for all the listeners, how can they reach you? I'm sure there are going to be some founders out there trying to send you decks, some investors trying to get involved with supporting the All Race mission. Where can one find you? 
Yeah. So they should definitely find me on Twitter and I'm at Animaniac. It's A-N-N-I-M-A-N-I-A-C. It's the best place to sort of involve me in a conversation. Amazing. Is that your handle because you loved the cartoon Animaniacs when you were growing up? Yes. And in fact, it was a college nickname. Someone used to call me Animaniacs because I was so, so crazy all the time. <laughs> it's really funny to hear that, like having just heard you like pontificate for this last hour with all these very salient, amazing points to like think of you as like possibly an Animaniac. But I guess you have to get the energy from somewhere, you right? You do, you do. <laughs> okay, wonderful. Well, thanks so much for being our guest. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, share the podcast with your friends on Twitter and tag a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode. See you soon.